1: Hi, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. T- this is Aaron Free Smith, and today we will be chatting with Daniel Magaziner. He has written a new book called The Art of Life in South Africa through Ohio University Press. Welcome, Daniel.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: <laughs> so, if I could get us started, um, first, I would like to hear about your background as well as your background as it relates to the subject area.
0: Um, the first thing I should say is that the book is also published in South Africa by the University of KwaZulu-Natal.
1: Oh, that's excellent. That's so Thank fun. you.
0: I want to be sure to give them a shout out as well. So my interest in this subject, um, and I take your question to be both general and specific, my interest in, in, in South Africa and South African history began when I was an undergraduate. Um, I had gone to school as an American history major, but had become disillusioned with American history and Un- somewhat uninterested in European history <laughs> and I was very fortunate that I was an undergraduate at place with a really wonderful and rich African history program. And I started to take African history courses towards the end of my sophomore year and in my junior year I took a course on the history of South Africa which was a course that spanned the entire academic term and it was an incredibly rich course that I found just very powerful and I wanted to keep studying it and in particular, within that, I was very struck by the study that we did of the Black Consciousness Movement, which was a political movement in 1970s South Africa, mm-hmm. best known for its um, leader, Steve Biko, who was later killed by the apartheid government in 1977. And I was just fascinated by Black Consciousness, which was something that seemed somewhat familiar to me, coming from the context of a very politically conscious community in Philadelphia during the time period when I had grown up. Um and it was just familiar and fascinating, and it became the subject of my senior thesis as an undergrad, which in turn spurred on the idea that I could continue to study this fascinating subject in graduate school, um, which in turn led to it becoming the subject of my dissertation and of my first book, which was published um, by Ohio also, as well as Chicana in Johannesburg in 2010.
1: Okay. Great. And how have you used this background into your professional life? How does this intersect?
0: Well, I mean, the, it's really, uh, there's no other way to put it. I mean, it was the fact, what I do now, how I spend my time, um, is what I'm passionate about, has everything to do with that experience of being 19 years old and being in an African history class for the first time and just being completely blown away by the stories and the possibility that I could um, in some ways help to be a part of the telling of these stories. Um, And so it really is what led me to do it. Um, My initial interest in black consciousness was very much in the interest of the idea of how do we get to intellectual histories of being? How do we begin to Mm. generate um, the methodologies and archives with which we can assess the question of historical ethics, how people thought one was supposed to be at certain times and certain places, um, which is a subject that I found tremendously fascinating, um, and it led me in all sorts of directions into the space, in particular, of radical Christianity, which was um, on what I wrote in my first project uh, significantly. Um, And then that sort of subsequently opened up all these other for me about trying to recover other ways of being and the possibility that intellectual history can be about the recovering of certain ethics associated Mm -hmm. with certain eras, and not just how I had learned it in my European intellectual history courses, which was, you go through the greatest hits of who everyone agrees are the great thinkers of intellectual history. and I was just so struck that by looking at African intellectual history, you could get to stories and thinkers and experiences that were just very different and had, were promoted by a very different set of concerns than those in the sort of classic intellectual history model.
1: Okay, that's fascinating. And how do you think that it, uh, it how is intellectual history a departure then from a more social history?
0: One thing that I kind of learned in graduate school, and, and this is very true, I think, when thinking about South African historiography in general, is that when I was in school, which was in the first years of um, the 2000s, the, Af- the Africanist historiography had been was kind of haltingly moving away from the social history that had dominated mm-hmm. the field. And I think that the roots of this social history were, or of this dominance, I should say, of social history were in part because of the very real challenge in the last decades of the 20th century of dealing with issues of African, um, underdevelopment, um, of poverty, of, uh, you know, um, inequality, global inequality, and how those were present in particular in Africa and trying to understand the roots of this and trying to understand how Africans have navigated this. And so social history had been a response to that. Now in South Africa, this had an even more clear, I should say, a clearer political edge, because in South Africa, social historians in the 1980s in particular had been critical in developing the sort of Marxist critique of apartheid, denying the cultural particularities of Africana nationalism and and, what was called Christian nationalism as, as as the apartheid was known within in South Africa, but instead looking at some, what are the real after effects of the South African political economy, especially since the advent of industrialization in the late 19th century that result in the South Africa we see today. And that social history was pointed because it was suggesting that there were things that needed to happen to transform South Africa that went beyond just ending apartheid segregation and apartheid law.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and that was just a very profound scholarship that had kind of you know, um, a great effect in politics and in the South African Academy. But what I was struck by is it left a lot of stories untold because it tended to focus on the stories of workers, the stories mm-hmm. of peasants whatnot, um, migrant labor, these sort of classic stories of the South African political economy. Um, what Intellectual History and the Black Consciousness and offered me, and which I think I'm still intrigued by, was it was a way of looking, because their analysis, the analysis of the students and leaders who became, over time, known as the Black Consciousness Movement, their analysis suggested that the problem with South Africa was not necessarily a problem of political economy, even though they were very aware of all the ways in which the economy had been structured to favor um, white South Africans, and, but, and the place the roles that black people were supposed to play within that. But rather, their critique suggested that there was an intellectual problem with the black community, which was that over the years of conquest going back to the middle years of the 19th century and then proceeding through the advent of apartheid, through events like the Sharpeville Massacre in 1960 and so on and so forth, Africans, as they understood it, black people as they understood them, had lost their ability to see a future. They lost their ability to have faith that they could be the authors of their own existence. And so black consciousness was calling people to a sort of intellectual responsibility. It wasn't about subscribing to the doctrines or dogmas of a particular political party, but rather it was this idea that you need to begin with yourself. You need to begin with this critical self-assessment of the ways in which you had been um, cowed by apartheid and white supremacy. And how on the terrain of the self, was to start the process of first self-reconstruction, and then would become community reconstruction, and then in time it would be social and economic reconstruction. So it was very much about intellectual history. Um, And so in recovering that, I I thought that was was an interesting critique and complication of a political, uh, of a literature focused on social history that tended to see movements only in terms of their maneuvering within the politics in South Africa, not so much this question of how individuals were called to responsibility through these ideas of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, This carries me then into my new project because it actually... One thing that I was very struck by in studying black consciousness was that most of the literature on intellectual history, whether in South Africa or elsewhere on the continent, tends to focus on resistance movements and political leaders. And to me, that is great. Uh, We need to know those stories. We need to understand concepts, you know, figures like, you know, Nereri and others. But there are other kinds of intellectual histories out there. And so I, over time, began to look away from the narrative of the struggle and try and see what other sorts of stories I could find.
1: Okay. N- not necessarily the stories of, of ordinary, everyday Africans, but sort of more exceptional stories? Well,
0: I mean, it, it, I, I wouldn't put it exactly that way. I mean, I think that um, my main goal, what I'm, I'm still very interested in, is how otherwise unexceptional people make Mm -hmm. sense of their time. Um, I think that that's a fascinating historical question. And I think that it's a a critical intellectual history question as well. Mm
1: -hmm. Now methodologically,
0: that poses tremendous challenges because you don't usually have the ability to access your everyday ordinary people. And in particular, you can access them. If you access them, it tends to be through these social historical methodologies. Mm -hmm. Uh, which are sometimes more quantitative, and sometimes they're through types, of the worker, you know, the, the domestic servant, these sorts of things. Um, in terms of intellectual history, though, you have to kind of you're you're trying you need to access materials, and so um, some of my earliest training in, in in at the University of Wisconsin, where my PhD was on the ways in which people had used. Um, oral traditions and other sort of exceptional stories to begin to make these arguments about political ethics going back into the deep past. And so part of what I'm interested in from black consciousness to to today is trying to figure out how we can access representative stories. Um, so not exceptional stories necessarily, but mm-hmm. finding stories that maybe are representative of how people thought at, at, at different times and places.
1: Right. So I think that's an excellent seg into this book in particular. How did you go about finding your sources, and what were some of the challenges or surprises that you came up against? So
0: this book does come kind of directly out of this critique that I had um, was beginning to develop about the practice of African intellectual history mm-hmm. and the ways in which it was tending to focus on only on well-known people. Uh, which seems to me to be in many ways replicating uh, European history, where intellectual history courses and, and textbooks tend to focus on you know well-known thinkers at the expense of that more of uh, sort of the idea of average thought, if we can say it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, when I was beginning to think about my next project, one of the things that I was very struck by about Black Consciousness was um, in the 1970s it had developed an aesthetic. It had developed an aesthetics of resistance that demanded that all artists, be they playwrights, poets, painters, whatever, be reflecting in their art on the necessity of struggle. Right. Uh, black consciousness argued that everyone had to be for struggle. Mm-hmm. And if you weren't for struggle, you were irrelevant. And so I thought that was kind of interesting and I wanted to read more about that. And as I learned um, that... One of the things that I found very very striking about it was that that idea that the only kind of good black South African art was political art was actually reflected in the historiography on African art in South Africa, where if what scholarship existed tended to focus only on the ways in which art could be read politically. And I saw that these two things, They they were so familiar to each other, I began to wonder whether or not black consciousness—one of the ways in which black consciousness was most successful was in its insistence that black people reflect on politics alone, so much so that art historians had kind of imbibed that idea and were only using that lens to look at African art. So I began to wonder what other ways of interpreting African art were out there. Um. And so I was trying to read and I went, I had a leave and I was in South Africa and I was kind of poking around in, in, uh, newspaper archives and meeting artists and poking around in museum archives.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
0: was having a very hard time finding anything that would give me purchase because one of the problems with studying art is that especially the visual arts in South Africa, what I was really interested in were the voices of artists. But what I saw were that In the archive, those voices tended always to be mediated by white reviewers. Um, White reviewers were the people who wrote about African artists and helped to condition how we understood them. It was very hard to get an artist's voices. I was getting very frustrated. Um, And then I found a biography of a particular South African artist, and in that biography, it referenced some letters that he'd written to someone. And there were these really extensive quotations from these letters, and I thought, wow, this is unique. I haven't seen anything like this. And it gives me access to an artist's thoughts in a way that I hadn't had previously. Mm -hmm. And so I went, I figured out where those letters were. I went to that archive. I accessed the big folder filled with these letters. And I was very fortunate because the archivist said, you know, we have a lot of more folders like this. And she showed me into this locked file cabinet, which was an archive of a school that I'd never heard of where this one particular artist had been a student in the early 1960s, and which turns out to have been the the apartheid government school for the training of African art teachers in a place called Indulani. And this archive was a remarkable collection of voices, because within it, it had about three decades of correspondence files from individual African students writing to their own teachers, about their experiences under apartheid. It had their newsletters of the school that the school had produced, which were remarkable, you know, thrice-yearly productions of this is what life is like at this school for the training of African art teachers. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, I went from having no voices to having this panoply of voices, which spoke to a very... I mean, they were exceptional people. These were people who were, by definition, getting training for an extra year as artists, which most people in South Africa did not. But they weren't famous people. Um, Most of them don't go on to become well-known artists. But they were people who were trying to navigate apartheid South Africa. And they were reflecting on their navigation in real time. So I suddenly had this archive that was incredibly rich and incredibly loud and vocal. And so the project kind of developed from my trying to figure out what to do with this archive, how to make Mm -hmm. sense of it.
1: And where was this archive?
0: So the archive was held at the Killy Campbell Collection, which Mm -hmm. is um, part of the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, Mm -hmm. in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, in South Africa. Um, And it was, what had happened was the school had run from 1951 to 1981. And when it closed in 1981, um, the woman who had taught at the school since 1963 a woman named Luna Pearson who had been the sort of the head teacher and archivist of the school was you know thought that she was just going to get rid of some paper and she was just starting to destroy the archives because she didn't really see the point of it and then a woman named Yvonne winters who was a mm-hmm. curator at Kelly Campbell and a major player in the sort of cultural um, the cultural market in in Durbin at the time, who was very active in sort of the preservation of African crafts and all sorts of you know, research into that subject, kind of convinced her, no, there's some use in this. Why don't you um, why don't you give it to us and we'll put it in the archive?" Um, and I'm not totally certain, but I think that no one then had looked at it um, until I showed up many years later.
1: That's incredible. Um, and did you were you able to sort of corroborate the story or the story of this archive in any other historical repositories in like the the Durban archives or any other places were you able to find other evidence of this school
0: yeah that's an interesting question because one of the things that I've reflected on repeatedly in this project was this was a school that trained about a thousand people um which made it i think. I can say this with a certain degree of confidence: the largest art school on the African continent
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, for most of the period of its existence. Yet most people in South Africa had never heard of it, right. so there was this sort of very unlikely aspect to it. Um, there were some things that allowed me to convince that I to convince myself that I wasn't just the subject of an elaborate fraud. <laughs> um, and one of them was that I visited the site. And when you visit the site, and I spent a lot of time there over the course of years, um, you see remarkable evidence of the community that had lived there. And I'm very fortunate that I'm able to reproduce a great deal of this in um, images in the book, which has about 100 images, Mm -hmm. Um, because uh, you can see the remnants of this creative community that lived there. Um, Some of the stuff that's there is in tremendous disrepair. A lot of it is preserved because there's now a provincial school for the deaf on the site and within the fences of the school are preserved these tremendous statues that students have made, um, are preserved murals inside the breezeways of the school campus and within the main hall of the school are preserved along the outside wall of the main hall, a remarkable frieze made out of stucco that was constructed in the early 1960s, which tells, which is basically the story of the Bible. of the Old Testament around the entire structure of this building or entire outer wall of this building. So there's remarkable physical evidence of it. There's also the memories of the people who lived there and who can recount stories of their time there. And then I was able to use contacts and connections and I got a great deal of help from some remarkable academics who've been interested in this place um, for different reasons and different, you know, interested in different parts of the story, but who were able to help me, were be able to help me find former students who uh-huh. could tell me about their experiences at the school and who could share their own archives of their time in the school with me. Um, and then I could go further still. Mm-hmm. And I could see how in other archives you could find reflected the ways in which people who left this school, um, the ways in which they went out into the world, how they carried the school with them, how the experiences that they had at the school were reflected in their other dealings. Um, I found some amazing examples of this. One of my favorite, I think, um, was in 1968, I'm going to get my dates wrong because I don't have the book in front of me, but I think it was in 1966, I want to say, um, the main newspaper, the largest circulated newspaper for black people in Johannesburg, the world, published a scathing review of a drawing that was done by a South African artist named Dumili Fenning, who went on to become quite famous, in, in, but at this point was very unknown. And he had published this picture of a mother that he called Mother and Child, which showed a very kind of distorted figure of a mother with her child. And this newspaper was scathing and it was ugly. And a a few days later, a letter came in from this random guy named Ezekiel Mabusella who worked at Edgar's, which was a local department store where he dressed mannequins for a living. And Mabusella said, you know, with all due respect, you don't know what art is. And he told them about how art was about self-expression. And so art was about a way in which someone said something visually that no one else can say. And so rather than critique what appears to us to be ugly, we need to ask, what is Dumile trying to say to us? And Mabusella, I was later able to figure out, had been a student at the Endelaney School. He didn't go on to be an artist, he wasn't an art teacher in banter education, he worked at Edgar's, but he had carried with him some of what he had learned there about what art was, enough so that he was motivated to intervene in -hmm. this newspaper's put-down of someone who perhaps he considered a fellow artist, and his portrayal of a mother and child. So there was, and that was just one of, I found numerous pieces of the stories of Indulani people out there in the world during this time period, which allowed me to kind of read back into their archives and figure out what they had done to put them in that position, ultimately, where they can intervene, like Mabusella had with this, this anecdote with the
1: world newspaper. And how did they see themselves? post-experience? I mean, if this was a school that was built out of the Bantu education system, which was meant to keep Africans down and keep African thought to a minimum, how how did they feel of themselves when they were in the system? Or, or was it just a escape from their normal lives? It's hard to generalize. Um, there certainly
0: was some of that. Um, most, so the way that the system worked was that Most of the it was not an art school per se. Although during its early years in the nineteen fifties, the teachers had been trained artists, many of whom had gone to art school in the UK, and who were kind of using the advent of this Bantu Education Art School, the fact that it existed, to try and train artists. Uh, But. During most of the school's existence from the 1960s to the 1980s, once this woman, Liliana Pearson, takes over, the school is to train art teachers explicitly. Mm -hmm. So what this means is you get a, a variety of different people who come to the school. For some of them, they're teachers. They've already been teaching, and there are some people who've been teaching for a very long time. And the way it worked was that the only way you could get a raise but one of the ways you could get a raise in Bantu education was to go into a specialist course to get a certificate and then you could qualify for a higher, a higher, mm-hmm. a higher wage. So some people just did that because it was a way to get, you know, a higher wage. Some people went because teaching at Bantu education schools, because they were, as you described them, you know, very much training for second class citizenship. The schools were a very unpleasant place to teach. Um, they were overcrowded, they were poorly resourced and so on. So for many teachers, the idea of going to Delaney, which was not a particularly nice place to live because it was an old and very dilapidated mission station, but it was a tremendously beautiful place. Um, it was in the Natal Midlands. It was in a, uh, up on a hill. It had wonderful vistas. It was very different than the townships outside mm-hmm. of Joburg and other major cities where most of these people tended to be teaching during the Sun period. So for them, it was this opportunity to get out for a year, to have a year where they could do something else. For others, though, these were people who felt themselves compelled to create, and there were no other art schools for black South Africans in the country at the time. There were a couple of well-known night schools that had been kind of written about a great deal in the literature on, on African art in South Africa, um, one in Johannesburg, there was a thing in Durban for a while, but in terms of a systematic training, with training in art history, with training in multiple methodologies, multiple mediums, this was the only place in town, ta- this was the only game in town until the 1970s when Fort Hare, um, the, the
1: mm-hmm. what had
0: once been the sort of preeminent university for Africans, developed an art program. So for many people this was just something they just desperately wanted to do because they knew themselves to be creative. And I have these examples of people who had been teachers for 25, 30 years who were nearing retirement but who felt profoundly unfulfilled because they knew that there was something else they needed to do. And they applied to come to Indelene to have a a chance to study and to work on that. Um, So when these people come, and then there's a couple examples of people who just want to be artists now, and this is the only way they can do it. Mm -hmm. What happens, though, is that if you go to Indelene, The government pays you. You get a government bursary first from the central government and then in the 1970s from the Bantu stands or the separate the separate government under the separate development system. And in return for the government paying you to go and study art for a year, you have to spend that much time teaching the Bantu education school, which means that you have to um, become, if you're not already, you're going to become part of this system. You are by definition going to become a collaborator. Mm -hmm. Now, this to me was a fascinating uh, negotiation because I had been trained through my study of the resistance movement to see, in many senses, people who are working with the government in government structures as somehow complicit in apartheid. But these were people whose motivations were multiple, and that didn't really, and that idea that. You know, if you're working with to 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 advance the goals of the apartheid government by participating in the system, that you are um, sort of morally suspect or ethically suspect in some way. These people, their motivations were multiple, and it belied that that sort of Manichean view of things that tended to predominate in South African historiography. Um, what uh, so what so what I kind of look at then is how. They come to see it, which gets, uh, this is a totally long winded Mm -hmm. answer to what was your question, Mm -hmm. how they saw themselves. Um, For many of them, they become convinced that nothing good is going to happen in South Africa unless young children are given an opportunity to express themselves. Mm -hmm. While at Indoland, they imbibe all of these ideas about the necessity of art. For the self-expression of the young people in particular, um, kids, primary school-aged children, that they learn from the part of their lessons. They have this, the, uh, they learn, um, educational psychology as part of the training in Delaney. And this educational psychology that they learn actually has roots going back to the interwar period and to progressive theorists, people like John Dewey and Herbert Reed and various others who had developed this idea during the 1920s and the 1930s, that art was essential to human development, and that by giving kids an opportunity to do art in school, you were granting them the ability to figure out how, how to express themselves in a society of, you know, an industrial modernizing society, whether in the United States or Great Britain or South Africa, where kids weren't making things anymore, kids weren't working out problems for themselves. And these progressive theorists thought that art was the place where kids could figure out who they were and begin to see themselves as agents active in the world. These ideas in this very convoluted path make their way to South Africa. And in Delaney, even though it's embedded within the apartheid school system, as part of the training, these students at, at Indulene learn these ideas that suggest that the most important thing a little kid can do is just have a time where they get to create. And these teachers come to see that, they, they come to know that's true because for most of them, the fact that they get a year in which they get to focus intently on their own creative processes is transformative. Mm-hmm. Um, I have so much evidence of these teachers their own selves to have been changed by this opportunity. So for many of them, when they go out after having left in after having earned their certificate, they are determined to replicate what they themselves had experienced within the Bantu education schools to which they are assigned. Now, as I show in the book, it's never quite so simple Mm -hmm. because when they go back out into the Bantu education schools, they enter a world that is not designed for young African children To begin to discover themselves and to begin to express themselves, and so there's this tremendous tension where they are trying to prove to themselves that their work in these schools can do that vital work that they themselves had experienced while in Delaney. And so, for many of them, and what I was very struck by was, as you know, I'm sure most of your listeners know. In 1976, there begins this, the student uprisings across South Africa yeah. that begin in Soweto in mid-June 1976. And that these target in particular the Bantu education schools. And one thing I was so struck by was I have letters from Indolene teachers, many of whom teach in Soweto or other urban townships where to where the rebellion spreads over the course of that, those next many months. Um, In 1976 and 1977, who experienced this not as a moment of possibility,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: not as a moment of incipient revolution, which is how I had interpreted it in my first book, but instead who experienced it as a tragedy, because they wanted to believe that their schools were, in fact, studios. They wanted to believe that at the school, they were creating young South Africans capable of themselves being creative. And when the school system is thrown into, into chaos after the student uprising, that for them is a tragedy because they've lost the ability to fashion young people as they themselves have been fashioned. Mm-hmm. And, they, and, they, and, they're, and they're so incredibly sad about that, even as some of them also are excited that this portends perhaps political change in South Africa.
1: Sure. So they, to a certain extent, they saw themselves as an escape. They were they were providing these children a, an essential tool for survival in the apartheid state when, in fact, they were being seen as collaborators to this oppression.
0: You know, I, I don't know that it's escape. I wouldn't necessarily... Because the thing is, one thing that I'm very struck by in this archive is how historical it is, which sounds like mm-hmm. a very kind of silly thing to say. But... Because what you don't see there are people reflecting on apartheid, reflecting on the sort of holistic experience of their lives and the necessity of some sort of profound social change, Mm -hmm. which tends to be how we interpret this this moment. What you see instead are people managing the sort of daily challenges of being a teacher, in in South African society during this time period. The daily challenges of trying to learn how to make art, of having to navigate the you know legislation that determines where you live and where you're allowed to work and so forth. Um, I don't think that they were really thinking about escape.
1: Okay.
0: I don't think that they were really thinking about cognitive escape, like let's say resistance mm-hmm. or something of that. I think that they were thinking about and maybe survival sounds a little bit too, too kind of bare, but I think that that term kind of gets to it to some extent because they're thinking about how does one become a good person, how does one become a better person, and I think that they saw that art was a means by which by which people develop their humanity, and so they saw themselves as doing the work that art was supposed to do in society. It was supposed to make people better. Mm-hmm. That they were within South African society complicated their 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 ability to do so tremendously. But I think it also was for them. It was the idea that even under Bantu education, even under apartheid, even under white supremacy, young African kids should get the chance to create because that makes you a better person. So it what it was about providing tools with which to kind of develop one's own self. What the end of it was, if they envisioned that, um, you know, because if you go back to Dewey, Dewey's idea was that if kids do art and kids learn to express themselves, they will become more informed, they'll become more confident, they will become better Democrats, small d Democrats, and mm-hmm. participated in the, the, you know, the production of American democracy. That obviously wasn't what was happening in South Africa. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what they imagined was at the end of the process, what the whole thing was for. I think for many of them, it was to make kids feel like they had agency to make kids feel like they could do things in the world, mm-hmm. and that that for them was kind of the extent of it. Um, there were some people i 'm sure who had different ideas but um and that and, 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 and for many of them, the kind of irony of it or the paradox of it is that the only means they had for doing this, which they thought was so vital was the apartheid school. And so some of these people experienced the decline of the Bantu education system as tragedy, like I said. Mm -hmm. Others are seen as collaborators. Um, And the best example of this I have in the book is a particular teacher who went on to become a principal, who was a very dedicated art teacher, who, as these school protests had spread across the country, ended up actually being stoned to death by his students in 1980. Um, And this terribly dramatic and traumatic episode. Um, and which, you know, he, he, you can read that story, a teacher, an administrator, in a Bantu education school system is killed by radical students. You can read that one way in
1: mm-hmm. the narrative
0: of the struggle, but I, in the book, I try to get it from his perspective. Why did he want them not to destroy the school? What was that school to him? What made it a place of possibility worth preserving? Mm. Um, Because it wasn't that he he wasn't so simple that he was a collaborator, that he was colluding with apartheid. I think that he believed that there was good work being done there, because he himself had seen it done, Mm
1: -hmm. because
0: he had gone through this process.
1: Do you see this story replicating itself again in in modern-day South Africa with the the current student protests that are going on? Is this again a situation of the establishment being the collaborators and the students being the, the voice of change and trying to destroy something to make it better? Or where do you see this story fitting into modern day South Africa?
0: You know, that's a, that's an interesting and very challenging question. Um, and as a historian, I, I tend to try not to answer sure. such questions um, because I, I, I don't know, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. Um, I have been asked this before and, and, my main kind of suggestion is that it took us a very long time and us as a kind of community of historians to rediscover nuance in our understanding of, of black life under apartheid and to get away from what I, you know, had earlier just talked about the sort of Manichaean view of things. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting to see the ways in which young people in South Africa are picking up, in particular, the political rhetorics associated with black consciousness. This rhetoric of, of selfhood, radical selfhood, this insistence that being needs to be for change, and what ultimately became um, kind of a marked... Process under black consciousness, this sort of calling out of this name calling, in a sense, and saying that you, if you're not with us, you're against us, sure. which became very much part of black consciousness as they began to mark certain people as being for change and others as not. Um, and they had all these sort of linguistic devices they used, they deployed to make that, that distinction clear. And you see that happening again. What Indeleni teaches me to some extent is the danger in that. Um, mm-hmm because we kind of lose sight of what work other people think they're doing and what work they might be doing with our insistence on this, you know, one note reading of of things. Um, Now, that is not to say that I'm like, you know, saying, well, therefore we should have kept the statue of Cecil Rhodes up. Cecil Rhodes was doing good work in South Africa. That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I'm saying instead is that when we get into these much more sharply politicized moments, um, there is a loss of nuance. And I think what I'm trying to do in this book is to restore some element of, or to recover, I should say, um, an element of nuance. Because I think one of the the things that I'm struck by, and this gets to our, you know, where where we kind of open this conversation, this question of representative stories versus exceptional stories. Um, For all of the focus on black consciousness for all of the fame of its um, of people like Steve Biko and many others who, who are still very active in South African politics today and who exist to inspire this new generation of student activists, um, there were a relatively small minority within the black South African community. Um, the vast majority of people navigated the terrain of their existence differently than did activists. Now, activists were very loud and very vital, and we tend to focus on them for very good reason, because they are the people who imagined futures and moved society to that future, and we can learn a great deal from them. Mm-hmm. But still, that was relatively uncommon. Much more common, I think, were the ways in which people did what they could to navigate their circumstances, and were less focused on the future, this sort of un, this imagined future beyond the end of apartheid, which is where black consciousness lives, but instead we're focusing on the ways in which they could deal with their present. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that is, that we can kind of talk about black experience in South Africa in such a way is, is revealing because we tend not to think of that time period as being a place where you could see such survival strategies and navigation in ways that are also very ethical, um, that weren't about personal gain, but were about trying to live a good life, Um, just a different sort of good life than that lived by famous activists, people like Steve Biko, and others. And I actually think that in some ways that actually makes the story bigger than South Africa, Mm -hmm. because that's what most people do. Most people don't make dramatic change. Most people don't envision the system that exists outside of the system in which they live. Most people work within the system and do what they can to make their lives better, to live good ethical lives with whatever circumstances they have. Um, And so it strikes me that black consciousness um, I found to be a very romantic story, whereas in Delaney I find to be a very human story. And so at any moment of, of, of political, you know, Fire, like we see now, um, you wonder about the human stories and the sort of quieter stories that aren't being told.
1: Sure. So, what do you think? What is the next step from here? Where does this research go?
0: Well, it's you interesting. Have- I mean, I've kind of struggled with that. I, I, Indulani was um, an incredible gift mm-hmm. to me as as a, a historian um, because the archive was so compelling and the stories. You know, I, I've only kind of touched the tip of them um, in this conversation. They're just stories that are just overflowing with humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the kind of history that I am and that I like. And so it, um, it, you know, there's like a little bit of mourning now that the story is told, that the book is out there. You know, I feel like I've I've done what I can with it. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's kind of time to move on. Um, and that's hard because I really... Was very struck and very involved in these stories. Um, one of the things that I've actually kind of ironically become interested in was there were some people within the Indelene system, which I include, you know, the people who go to the school and then go out and don't change Bantu education, don't rebel against it but try to work within it. There were the exceptional figures who come to Indelene, but then who kind of see the whole system and decide they want nothing with it, nothing to do with it. Um, And one of those was this man named Selby Mbusi, who was one of the earliest students at the Indolinius School, who went on to become a high school art teacher in Durban during the 1950s, and who then was developing his own art practice and earned a reputation as a sculptor and as a painter, and who took that to get a fellowship to get out of South Africa. And with the exception of three days, when he came back in, 19, in the immediate aftermath of Sharpville to collect his children, never went back to South Africa. Because he, in a sense, saw that even though he had imbibed these ideas of humanity and self-expression through art, he understood that in apartheid South Africa, for a black South African, no matter how well-meaning in Delaney's school and its ideas, it just wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. He understood the game, and so he got out. And he had this remarkable decade uh, between 1957 when he left and 1967 when he when he was killed in a car accident, um, of traveling through the United States, through Europe, through post-colonial Africa, and trying to figure out how best to produce the same thing that Indulani had been designed to produce, which is to say humanity, how to produce humanity apart from apartheid. In the Bantu education school system and so he ended up actually becoming really interested in the possibilities of ind- of design of industrial design and architecture and planning as a ways that you could as ways that you could promote new forms of African humanity and African self-identification um, in the 1960s and so he you know he bounced around a lot but he ended up in his last few years as um, along with a couple other people, as the guy who ran the continent's first program in industrial design at the university of Nairobi. And they did, I've been working through his archive and spending time in Nairobi and talking to students of his and seeing this remarkable moment of this guy who basically was utopian in his thinking, who had come from a context that was very pragmatic and realistic and had instead developed a form of utopian engagement that wasn't revolutionary, wasn't politics, in that sort of classic South African sense, but it was about how we can apply these ideas about African creativity um, and the material world, the ways in which people live in conversation with the material world, better to create more humane ways of living and creating in post-colonial Africa. Um, and so I've been working on his stuff um, for a while, and which has led me to You know, I don't know what it is yet, Um, but it's just a couple of pieces that I've written on the the efforts that he and his collaborators uh, developed to kind of think about African cities as sites of possibility Mm and places of creative potential in the 1960s.
1: That's fascinating. Well, hopefully you'll be able to turn that into another (laughs) large piece of scholarship. We shall see. We shall see. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, we are just about reaching the end of our time. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave us with here? Favorite stories or anything like that out of the book or out of your research?
0: I mean, I feel like at this point I, just, I would just, like,
1: you know, say, like, go buy my book. And honestly, no, no, I mean, that's actually a good point. I mean, where do you think that your book fits in to... Um, the university setting, or, or who do you think this book belongs to? Who, who should be reading this book? You know,
0: it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, on the one hand, it is of interest to South Africans. Mm-hmm. Um, it is of interest, I think, to people who, you know, there's a lot of stories of the ways in which people lived under apartheid and the ways in which they navigated that terrain. There are a lot of stories that we just don't know because there has been this tendency to only tell certain stories about that era. Um, and I was very struck by when I was doing this research and I was presenting earlier iterations of it at various venues in South Africa, the kind of hushed conversations I would have with people who saw themselves reflected in these stories, even if they hadn't actually been in Indore. Mm-hmm. Um, and who don't see themselves reflected in the conventional narrative of, of black life under apartheid. You know, They don't see themselves reflected in this sort of Idea of absolute oppression of black people, and they don't see themselves reflected in this idea of the politicized revolutionary community. Um, they live different lives. And so, you know, I think that that presents a challenge. It presents a challenge to South African popular memory, it presents a challenge to the historiography, and uh, hopefully, a kind of you know, uh, an opportunity to kind of explore different stories outside of some of our said narratives. So I'm very excited that it's being published in South Africa. I think that's, that's you know part of why I do what I do is because I just mm-hmm. I I you know I, that's just the audience I'm most excited about and and the good thing there is that it won't just be read in universities but it will be sold in bookstores and hopefully mm-hmm. some people will encounter it um, in the U.S. I mean it's I think that historiographically it's an odd little book. Um, I, I have to be I have to own that. Um, it's about a very small school. And a relatively small community, and it doesn't make it doesn't, I don't have any illusions that it actually is going to revise in a fundamental way um, our idea about the social history of South Africa. but I think that it does suggest the possibilities of there are small stories that we can tell, and that if we are fortunate as I was to find these archives, there are these small stories that can act as a tremendous prism that can show us so much about how society functioned and about the ways in which people functioned within that society that are, are revelatory. And I mean, I guess, and so, I mean, obviously, like there's a typical academic audience, but it, it is to me um, about the possibilities of history, writing, About the possibility of what I'm, what I think historians, you know, don't do enough, which is to go back to the past and to restore past possibilities um, through our, our methods. Um, I mean, I guess if I, if I had to kind of come up with the one story that captures this, and I think this is the last story within the book, is about a particular teacher who kind of gave me the title of the book. Um, it was this guy named Abednego Chamini, who um, had been a student in, 19, in 1960, and then wrote multiple letters a year to his teachers at mm-hmm. in Delaney until the school closed in 1981, And in the letters, you kind of see this fully realized person who's very frustrated because he wants to be an artist and no one takes him seriously. And to be perfectly honest, they shouldn't because he's not very good. Like I have an archive of his works and they're okay, but they're not great. But he and he's very frustrated because no one takes him seriously. But he keeps at it and he is tremendously successful in other ways. He's a really good teacher. He wins all these awards for his biology teaching. He's promoted. He becomes first an assistant principal, then a principal of his own school. He gets married. He has kids. He has a house. He's happy. Mm -hmm. Um, And he writes to his teacher at one point. He says, you know, there has been no progress in my art, but there has been tremendous progress in the art of my life. And I just think there's something so beautiful about that because his South African historiography doesn't really have a category for this guy it's not fair of us to say because he's a successful teacher and administrator in banjo education that he was a collaborator that's not fair Mm -hmm. but he wasn't an artist and he certainly wasn't resisting the system instead he was living and he was trying to live consciously and creatively and artfully and joyfully and I think he does Mm-hmm. and i um I found that to be pr- profoundly moving in its sort of basic humanity, and I, I tried to, for years to find him. I never did find him. Um, and I think at the end i I'm, 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 I'm almost happy about that uh, because I, then I don't have to know really what he was thinking. <laughs> right. Instead, I can just look at what he left behind, I can read his archives, and I can imagine him to have been satisfied. And I think that him satisfied, there's something very profound in that.
1: Sure. Well, and in that way, he was going against the system because he he did carve his piece of the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, yes, he was going against the pretensions of apartheid, which insisted that Africans were, Mm -hmm. in a sense, to always be I guess uncomfortable for lack of, you know. It's it put it sure. mildly, in the lives of which that in South Africa. Um, but I don't want to. I don't want to read him even within that sort of paradigm of resistance, because I don't think that's how he saw it. I don't think mm-hmm. that he was there being like I'm resisting apartheid through my happiness. <laughs> you know, maybe he was, but I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think instead that he saw he was like this is my life. This is where I am,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I am. It's frustrating in all these ways, and it's full of possibility in other ways, and I'm going to do what I can to live a good life. And I don't, so in a sense, yes, we can kind of take him out of context and say he was resisting the system because a good life was not what apartheid was supposed to be about. But if we, I think it's even more revealing and powerful to keep him in his context and to say, in a sense, this guy made a joyful life within apartheid. And so what we can then begin to see is the ways in which he teaches us things about our own lives. He teaches us things about how humanity is always in dialogue with context and often in productive dialogue with context. And that when we kind of learn to look beyond the level of the revolutionaries who are always offering critiques, frequently righteous critiques, uh, and we look instead at the level of regular folks, sometimes you see people managing and producing more humane existences in ways that are obscured by our dominant narratives, but I think are actually revelatory, because they reveal how people actually lived, not how people chafed against reality, but Mm -hmm. how people lived with reality, which is, I think, what most people do.
1: Right. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time today, and thank you for speaking with us. This has been Daniel Magaziner speaking about his book, The Art of Life in South Africa, published dually published by Ohio University Press and UKZN Press out of Durban, South Africa. Thank you very much, Daniel, for speaking with us. Thank
0: you, Erin. Yeah. Thank you, Erin. I really appreciate your time.